Our scripture today is from Genesis chapter 3. We'll be in verses 14 and 15, so you can open up there now. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. Of course, we're picking up mid-conversation, beginning in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpents, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in a short story called The Red Angel by G.K. Chesterton, the main character is interacting with someone who believes that fairy tales are bad for children because they frighten children and they fill their minds with evil and strange things to which the character in the story responds to this person by saying, fairy tales are not responsible for producing in children fear or any of the shapes of fear. Fairy tales do not give the child the idea of the the evil or the ugly. That is in the child already, because it is in the world already. The baby has known the dragon intimately ever since he had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides for him is a St. George to kill the dragon. This is the great and the essential value of story, at least the good ones. Was it the voyage of the Don Treader where Eustace had not read the, the right stories, Lewis says? They don't first provide an escape from reality. Rather, they help us understand reality better and deeper. The great truth that St. George and the dragon is not a fantastic example of a lesser story. Rather, it is a small and faint echo of the true story, the one that we actually inhabit right now. Because as we'll see today in seed form, the great story of Christianity, which means the actual truth of reality, is... What Jesus Christ came to do in its most basic form is to slay a great dragon and to save a beloved bride. That's the story. That's the drama. That's the plot of the actual world we actually live in. And those are the sides and the only sides. The side of the dragon or the side of the dragon slayer. And today we're going to hear the first whisper Of this great promise. So again, turn to Genesis 3 if you are not there yet. So far, we've seen the rebellion of Adam in Genesis 3 and the devastating entrance of sin into the world. Sin had immediately caused Adam to go from great gratitude to great grumbling, from communion with God and each other to contention with God and his wife. From naked and unashamed to fig leaves in fear, Adam went from blameless to blame shifting. These are the terrible effects of sin that still beset us every day. 
But we also saw the incredible, gracious reflex of God in coming to them first as a pursuing father. And now over the next two weeks, the Lord is going to take his seat as the righteous judge of creation. And he's going to respond to each of the three actors in this story, namely the serpent and the woman and the man. Today, we will spend our time considering his words to the serpent. And so again, I'll read verse 14 to start. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, he deceived the woman. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So we've read that so much that perhaps we can miss how strange that is initially just the actual words that are said because it appears as if God is primarily cursing the animal itself, which to be sure he is. It's not less than that. The, the serpent, the snake, as an animal, it, it falls in the kingdom of animals because apparently initially it was part of the livestock or beast of the field category which presumably would imply that it would have walked, not perhaps unlike a dragon. But it was cursed now to crawl on its belly, and it was thrown into the dust. So the actual animal itself was thrown into the dust, and, and it, for all time, has become a source of disgust and hatred and horror for most sane humans. I was on a ladder working on my roof a couple months back, and I looked down, between the house and the AC was this probably three-foot black snake just slithering. And the revulsion and the sprint for the shovel was very edemic. It was just there. There's nothing that makes your skin crawl for sane people like a snake. And that's not insignificant. That's actually an ongoing effect of, of the curse. There is a whole world caught up in that revulsion. Now you might ask, why would God do this to the snake as an animal? That seems a little strange, perhaps. Well, I really appreciate John Calvin's thought on that question. He says, by this act of vengeance, God wished to prove how highly he esteems human salvation. And catch this. Just as if a father should hold in derision the sword by which his son was slain. That's good, isn't it? So the sword didn't do anything, but the king hates the sword that slew his son. Perhaps it's not unlike that with the serpent. Yes, physical snakes crawl in their belly and are a sort of mortal enemy of mankind. And again, that's not insignificant. It's a living reminder of the judgment of God and the reality of the fall and how much God hates sin and what it has done to the good creation. And the snake for us is a reminder of the true battle that is currently being waged in the world. That reaction, that ugh, that reminds us that we are in a battle right now. Because though God curses the serpent only in the text, we know that he's speaking about more than just an animal. 
There's another serpent in the text. There is a capital S, serpents, animating and controlling the animal and even speaking through it. Not unlike when the demons would possess the man. Remember the man in the tombs? Demon possessed. They see Jesus and the demons say through him, what have you to do with us, Jesus? Have you come to torment us before the time? So this is something scripture clearly reveals. Demons can and have inhabited creatures in such a way to, to animate them and even speak through them. And this is what we would find here. But this is not just a demon. The serpent behind the serpent is Satan himself. This is the prince of demons and our true enemy. Standing in disguise with the man and the woman as God now pronounces judgments upon them. And, and there are several places in scripture that we could go to, to, to show this. But Revelation 12, 9 is the, the crystal clearest evidence of this. So I'll, I'll read it here without context because there's a whole world around it that I'd like to go into, but I don't have space. It just says this, Revelation 12, 9. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So Satan is that ancient serpent who is the deceiver of the world. John 8, 44, Jesus says, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own nature because he is a liar. And he is the father of lies. And so we must understand, saints of God, that this is Satan's entire agenda. He wants to lie to you. He wants to deceive you. He wants to draw us from the bright and clear light of the revelation of God in his word into the shadows, the shadows of, of doubt and the shadows of distrust, the shadows of subjectivism where we become God. And we decide what truth is that's satanic. And why does he want to do that? Because the devil and the demons hate God and men, and they are headed towards eternal judgment. And they want to bring as many humans as they can with them. That's the true story we are caught up in. Ephesians 6.12 for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So my question is, do you believe that that's true? Do you believe that spiritual warfare is real? Now, I know you're good Christians, and so you would say, of course we do. But my question is, do you really, like on Tuesday afternoon, when you're being tempted to, to gossip about a friend or a coworker, you're, you're being tempted towards brooding in quiet bitterness rather than covering it in love. And you're being tempted to say a cutting word to your spouse or being tempted to be a workaholic at the expense of your family's health or whatever sin ditch is easiest for you to fall into. Do you see these as the potentially satanic snares that they are? 
Now, I'm, I'm not saying that there's a demon behind every corner and that they perpetuate every sin. Much of our temptations come from our own indwelling sin. What does John say? The, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the big three. But Scripture says that we must also war against our spiritual enemy. And I'm saying that it is clear that the enemy can play on our vulnerabilities if we are not unaware, excuse me, if we are not aware of them. Because remember what the text says. The very moment the serpent entered the story in Genesis 3.1, what's the first thing we know about the serpent? Now the serpent was more crafty and more subtle than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. Which means... When Satan and his demons, however that all work, set their sights on you, they're not going to jump out in red tights with a pitchfork and a Ouija board. That's what they are not going to do. They will be subtle. He will be crafty and shrewd. In the screw tape letters, which if you have not read, put that to the top of your list. C.S. Lewis records letters written to an old demon to a younger demon on how to get his patient to fall. And he gives a poignant picture of the subtlety by, it, by which the enemy can work in Christian homes. So this is just one example, but man, it's a good one. This is from letter three of the screw tape letters, if you want to check the full thing out later, which you should. He says, so remember, the, the whole world in screw tape is upside down. God is the enemy. He's trying to get a demon to tempt a Christian, so orient that in your mind. He says, build up in that Christian house a good settled habit of mutual annoyance. Daily pinpricks. In civilized life, domestic hatred usually expresses itself by saying things which would appear quite harmless on paper. The words are not offensive, but in such a voice, at such a moment, they are not far short of a blow in the face. Work on that. And to keep the game up, you must see to it that each of these two fools has a sort of double standard. Your patient must demand that all of his own utterances are to be taken at their face value and judged simply on the actual words. While at the same time, judging everyone else's utterances with the fullest and most overly sensitive interpretation of the tone and the context and the suspected intention. Of course, this could be applied to many different relationships. Now, I know you're all good Christians, so I'm the only one who's ever fallen into this. Of course not. We all have. So my question is, do you see that for the spiritual warfare that it is? And do you fight it like you're fighting for the life of your family and your marriage and your school and your church? Because you are. Or can the enemy just trip you up whenever he wants because you have no context that at all he is trying to do just that? You have no idea of the battle. And if you think that this seems like I'm overly spiritualizing something insignificant, the Apostle Paul has my back here. So listen carefully to the insight that he gives the Corinthian church here in 2 Corinthians. Note, note how the logic works here. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. So probably referencing person 1 Corinthians, who they had to do church discipline on. 
person comes back, but the Corinthians are having a hard time receiving this guy back. That's probably what's happening. Paul says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his desires. So do you see what the satanic attack there is? It's it's not sulfur from heaven. It is old-fashioned, boring, deadly unforgiveness that has turned into bitterness and resentment and keeping records of wrong and assuming the worst, which is the exact opposite of what love is. And Paul says, that's what Satan's trying to do to you, just so you know. And so I've forgiven them. They are forgiven. Receive them back. Because we're not unaware that that's totally his plan here. Unforgiveness turned to bitterness is subtle and oh so deadly and can choke out the joy and the impact of a family and a church. And Satan knows it and it's one of his favorite weapons. So saints of God, let us not be unaware like the Corinthians were tempted to be. Let us repent thoroughly and quickly when we do sin against each other. Let us forgive eagerly, assuming the best, that we might not be outwitted by Satan. And remember, Satan's not dumb. Not only did he get unfallen man and woman to fall, he's been studying sinners for millennia. And he's incredibly more powerful than we are. And so we might be tempted to ask, well, then what match are we against Satan and his minions, given our frailty and our weakness? And if you do ask that, I have very good news for you. I have very good news for you that I've been really excited to talk about all week. Because the answer to that question comes as we continue reading the Lord's judgment upon the satanic serpent in verse 15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we've already seen the the gracious reflex of God immediately after man's sin and that he pursues the man. He cuts through his deflection, forces him into the light. But here we see the first glimpse of what will be the ultimate expression of the grace of God and the ultimate demise of Satan and sin. But we see it fittingly enough here in seed form. For in this verse, God declares That Satan's seed and Eve's seed will be covenantal enemies. They will be on opposite sides of a great conflict. They will be at enmity with each other. But then the Lord declares that this conflict between serpent and man will culminate in a crisis moment. Where the seed of the woman is bruised in the heel, but also in that moment... The serpent will receive a mortal wound, not to his heel, but to his head that will be bruised under the wounded heel. That's the judgment here. And now we must put ourselves in the place of the first readers of Torah, because remember, they only had the promise. They didn't have the fulfillment yet. So the the first people who read Genesis on the earth didn't have the fulfillment yet. 
They only had the promise. Which makes the great question of not just the Torah, but the entire Old Testament this. Who is the seed of the woman? Who is the one who will be the serpent bruiser? Who is the one who will be the wounded victor? Who will slay the dragon and save the bride? And understanding this helps us understand the drama that drives all of Scripture. It's all about the perpetuating of the promised seed. See, when the Lord commanded Noah to build an ark as he got rid of humanity 1.0, that wasn't just to save Noah and his family. It was so the seed would be carried forth in the story. And this helps us understand just how strong Abraham's faith was to obey God in preparing Isaac for a sacrifice the miracle son of his old age who would pass along the seed and just how dramatic it was when God, seeing Abraham's faith, provided the ram seconds before the knife plunged in to Isaac. And why does this matter for us today? Well, the Lord tells us in Genesis 22 to Abraham, right after that incident, in your seed, all the nations of the earth now will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And this certainly makes the book of Ruth and the kindness and nobility of Boaz shimmer with far greater dimension and significance as he fulfills his role as the kinsman redeemer of a hopeless widow. And why does that matter for us? Well, it matters eternally because as Ruth 4, 21 and 22 says, Boaz fathered Obed and Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse. Oh, and by the way, Jesse fathered David. And then we come to 2 Samuel 7, and of course, there's so many other places I could go. When the Lord says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And yet, though Solomon, David's kingly son, an earthly seed, though he was the wisest man in the land and he was the first to build that temple for God. He was a great sinner also. Yes, he was from the seed of the first woman, but he wasn't the seed of the woman. And so as the kingdom breaks apart after Solomon, Israel is left in exile, wondering whether the true seed will ever even come. But even here, through Daniel and through others, God continues to confirm that he's coming. God is really into cliffhangers. See, when we truly see the promise embedded in Genesis 3.15 for what it is, when we truly see it as what theologians call the, the proto-evangelium, the first proclamation of the gospel, the genealogies in scripture, far from being dull and dry, no, they become great rivers that are carrying our redemption forward. And it makes the very first verse in the New Testament then leap off the page with wonder and joy when you understand this redemptive drama that is the true story of reality. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The seed. No, this is not merely a formal introduction to some historical document. 
This is the proclamation from our covenant-keeping, faithful God that the seed of the woman has come in the person of Jesus Christ. But the drama continues. Because even if his own people didn't know who he was, do you know who did? The serpent. And that's why he inspired Herod to kill all of the sons in Bethlehem. To get the seed before the seed got him. And that's why the serpent tried in the wilderness to broker a deal with Jesus Christ. Just anything but continuing on the path. And that's why Jesus said no. Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. Now, why would Jesus have to set his face? Well, it's because in Jerusalem there awaited a grim and a terrible battle. One that would culminate in the one perfect man, Jesus Christ, experiencing more suffering than any other human has ever or will ever know. And it would culminate in him being lifted up with his hands and his feet nailed to a criminal's cross. And do you remember who it was who conspired for his death? It was the Jewish elite. It was the self-righteous ones. And do you remember what Jesus said about them? You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's will. He was a murderer from the beginning. Seed of the serpent. Doing the will of the serpent. Looking to murder the author of life. And they did. They put him on that cross. And while Jesus was on that cross, just to take a breath of air, he would have to leverage himself up on that nail that went through those feet, his heel burning and bruised from the effort. And Satan thought he had won the battle. He thought he had outwitted the curse in Genesis 3.15 that he so lived in terror, not realizing, as Scripture says, That by getting Christ secured to the cross, he had just secured his own demise. Because on the cross of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God and the perfect sacrifice was redeeming the world and the church with his blood. And on the cross, the wrath of God against all the sins of the sons of Adam was being propitiated for those who would believe on him. And with every agonized lift of his heel, though it appeared the serpent was triumphing, actually, His head was being bruised, and he was receiving a mortal wound, which Christ would confirm three days later. When he rose from the dead, and he walked out of the tomb, not just as the seed of the woman, but as the new Adam, inaugurating a new creation. 1 John 3.8 The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Slay the dragon. 2 Corinthians 11.2 I feel a divine jealousy for you, church, because I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Jesus Christ. Save the bride. This is the greatest story. This is the truest story. This is the story of our salvation. Because you, saints of God, are united to Jesus Christ. But obviously the story is not over. 
Because there is still rebellion and there is still brokenness, both in the world and in our own hearts and in our homes. The outcome of the war is confirmed, but the battle rages on today. The serpent has received a mortal wound, but he's still a menacing liar who rages cruelly, not unlike Hitler even after D-Day. And this is why one of the most important verses for Pilgrim Hill to know and to know it deep into our bones is Romans 16.20, where Paul, as he nears the end of his greatest letter, exhorts the church saying, this is amazing. I'll read verse 19, and then we'll get to 20. For your obedience is known to everyone, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. Verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So did you catch that, church? Why you exist, one of the reasons. Because Christ delivered the mortal wound to the serpent in his death and resurrection. The serpent's head was bruised. But now, the body of Christ will finish the job, empowered by Christ. Through you and through me and through the entire company of the redeemed, the church Catholic through all centuries will finish the job. And this answers the question we were left with at the end of the first section. What match are we against Satan and his minions, given our frailty and our weakness? The answer is, in ourselves we are no match. But we are not in ourselves. We are in Christ. We are the body of Christ, empowered by the Spirit of Christ. And through Christ, the enemy has no power or claim over us. Rather, our Lord has said, I will crush Satan under your feet. It's a big deal. We crush the serpent by rejecting the lies. And this I conclude. We crush the serpent by rejecting lies, walking in truth. We crush the serpent by considering others more significant than ourselves and walking in the path of love. We crush the serpent by refusing to let bitterness grow in our home and in our church and by living with a liturgy of repentance and forgiveness. We crush the serpent by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to the King of Kings. We crush the serpent by proclaiming joyfully and unapologetically the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are still under the serpent's deception. We crush the serpent by our praying in faith that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And we crush the serpent as Paul just said in the previous verse, by being wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil, as the body of Christ, on purpose, by faith, five minutes at a time. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and our Lord, and our God, we marvel at this true story that we are caught up in. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would set the reality of the hugeness of our redemption on fire that we would burn with a deep love for the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing what he accomplished on our behalf. And we would burn amazed at the dignity of the vocation you have called us to, to crush the serpent a little more every day through ordinary obedience, through ordinary faithfulness, through ordinary testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Empower us, Lord, to dig our collective heel 
into the skull of the serpent in our day. And now we would pray the way our Lord taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.